Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland. Today, we'll be talking to Rebecca Lester about her book, Famished, Eating Disorders and Failed Care in America. A tenured professor in anthropology and a licensed social worker, she turns her ethnographic and clinical gaze to the world of eating disorders, their history, diagnosis, lived realities, treatment, and place in the American cultural imagination. Famished, the culmination of over two decades of anthropological and clinical work, as well as a lifetime of lived experience, presents a profound rethinking of eating disorders and how we treat them. Fierce and vulnerable, critical and hopeful, Famish will forever change the way you understand eating disorders and the people who suffer with them. Well, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed uh, the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience. Sure, yes. Well, the book that we'll be talking about today, Famished, came out right before lockdown in the United States. So um, that's both good and bad that it was, you know, I it was out and um, I had that opportunity to, to get that project done. Um, but it certainly then, as we all know, the world has changed since since then, and it did um, affect research and, and writing as much as anything else. And um, I've been like everybody else, kind of hunkered down and trying to make it through and dealing with family and work and, and all the stresses that we are all dealing with and um, trying to develop new ways of doing anthropological research during a pandemic, because it's very difficult, of course, when, when we have to stay distant from one another to do the kind of work that we do. And how did you manage to adjust to, to this uh, remote working, as I imagine you have to be face-to-face quite often with people? Yes, exactly. We're usually face-to-face with people. So, we've, you know, I've moved as much as I can to virtual sorts of interactions, but it's it's not the same, as we all know. Um, the I guess some of the benefits, I, I mean, it's an odd word to use in a pandemic, but uh, some of the benefits were, you know, with being at home, I have a teenager, so we got to spend a lot more time together. And um, so there were some positives, I guess, that came out of the experience, but it has been quite a difficult thing as a cultural anthropologist to figure out how to continue to do ethnography when we can't physically be present with people. And what about your students? Uh, did you manage to uh, see them as often as you can over Zoom, for example? Oh, absolutely, yes. So everything moved to Zoom. Um, and uh, we are now back in person at Washington University. So that's been fantastic this semester. But um, I'm also a, a psychotherapist. So I had to move all of my clinical practice online as well. So that's been an interesting adjustment for everyone um, going from the in-person therapy to doing things virtually. So you already mentioned that you study anthropology and also that you're a psychotherapist. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I um, have a PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of California in San Diego. 
And during my training, and we can certainly talk more about the kind of the history leading up to that, but I've always been very interested in um, psychology and, and psychotherapy and how psychotherapy works and how people change and, and um, what we can do to facilitate that for people. So I have got my PhD in anthropology and I was lucky enough to get my job at Washington University. And once I was settled here in that position as in a department of anthropology, I really wanted to pursue my passion of getting clinical training and doing psychotherapy work with folks. So I went back to school and got my master's of social work and did my my licensure supervision and all of that and obtained my, my license in clinical social work. And so now I have a small private psychotherapy practice alongside my, my academic work. And were you always interested in psychology? I was, I was. Um, for reasons I explore in Famished, it's been a, a pretty much a lifelong interest for me. Um, experiences that I've had in my life and feeling unsatisfied with kind of the current way that things were being thought about and talked about and just became very interested as an anthropologist to think about what what anthropology might be able to bring to these conversations and how that might enrich the way that we're able to help people. And during your um education, but also career journey, how did you find the environment? And maybe there were mentors that were really supportive? Absolutely. Yes. I was so fortunate to have some really fantastic mentors. My my PhD mentor was um, Dr. Tanya Lerman, who's currently at Stanford University and was just a phenomenal support intellectually and personally, and really taught me, really helped me learn how to think anthropologically and also how to write in a way that can communicate complex um, information, you know, to a wider audience of people who are not specialists. But she also taught me how, how to mentor and how to take joy in that part of what it is that we do as academics. So I'm very indebted to her for sure. And what would you say to our younger listeners and early career researchers? I would say to seek out the people that are going to help you achieve what you want to achieve. I mean, oftentimes people may think, well, this is my advisor and this is just kind of what I have. But there's all sorts of ways to get informal mentoring, to get adjunctive mentoring. And there are people in the world who are going to be excited about what you're interested in and want to help you do it the best that you can. And to not be afraid to reach out to people in other universities or anywhere to get the kind of support that you want and that there are people who can really help you do that. Oh, that's very well put. So your book is Famished, Eating Disorders and Failed Care in America. Can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Yes, so Famished is a book that is a, a, a uses ethnography, which is what anthropologists do, our long-term study of people. It uses ethnography to untangle the knot of eating disorders and to expose how systems of care replicate and reinforce the very conditions that make and keep people sick. So it's centered on a particular eating disorder clinic in the United States and gives a very in-depth study of this particular clinic, but it uses that as a way of talking about these much bigger issues about how we've gotten to where we are with how we think about and treat eating disorders and, and what's not working and how we might make some changes. And why did you feel that uh, you had to write this book specifically? 
Yes. Well, this has been a long time coming. So as I mentioned before, with some personal experiences, so I myself, um, I'm a survivor of eating disorders. I had my first eating disorder. I was ill with anorexia when I was 11 and was in treatment and then had a recurrence at age 18 and was in treatment at that time as well. And so that's been a big motivator for me all throughout my education and training about trying to to think about what are some more creative and um, constructive ways that we might address these conditions because they're very complex. And they're, although we know a lot about them, there's still a lot that we don't understand. And so, as I mentioned before, you know, I was very interested in what anthropology might be able to bring to this conversation and how in conjunction with the other disciplines that engage with these illnesses, you know, what, what, how can we move the conversation forward? How can we develop new ways of approaching it? And so it's, it's been a long time goal of mine to really bring that to fruition. And so this was a very important book personally for me to do as well as intellectually. Excellent. Well, let's delve into some of the science that you cover in your book. And we can start from the basics. So can you define what are eating disorders? Yes. So eating disorders are behavioral conditions that are characterized by severe and persistent disturbance in in eating behaviors um, that also go along with distressing thoughts and emotions. So that's kind of the broad category. Um, They can be extremely serious. They can be deadly. But even before things get there, um, they can have all sorts of physical, psychological, and social um, effects that can considerably considerably, um, adversely affect how somebody is living their lives. And so there's a bunch of different ones that people are probably familiar with the kind of central ones, which are anorexia and bulimia. And so anorexia is characterized by um, self-starvation or weight loss that results in low weight. It's often, at least in the in the West, associated with a drive for thinness. And we can kind of talk about the cultural dimensions of that if you'd like to get into that. Um, it does have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric condition aside from the opioid uh, epidemic, which is re- just recently opioid addiction has overtaken anorexia as a leading cause of death of psychiatric conditions, but that gives you a sense of the magnitude of how dangerous these, these illnesses are. The other main one that people have heard about um, is bulimia nervosa, which is characterized by kind of um, consuming more food than one uh, wants to or feels in control of. So it's characterized by a loss of control or a sense of loss of control followed by some sort of compensatory behavior like um, purging or starving or exercise or diuretics, something that is there to compensate for the the eating. So that's bulimia alternates between those two things. And each of these has different subtypes that I won't get into all the details of, but they all have different nuances to them. There's also been a recent update to the DSM that includes binge eating disorder, which is the feeling out of control with eating and consuming large amounts of food, but without the compensatory behaviors like you see in bulimia. And then there are some other um, ones that people might not be familiar with. One is called OSFED, which stands for Other Specific Feeding and Eating Disorder. It's basically somebody who has characteristics of eating disorders, but it doesn't fit neatly into any of the other diagnostic boxes. And interestingly, up to 50% of people with eating disorders fall into this category, 
which suggests to me that maybe our boxes need to be rethought. <laughs> if half of our people mm-hmm. are struggling but don't fit in a box, then you know we need some better boxes. Um, and there's there's others that can are more associated with childhood, like avoidant restrictive food eating disorder or ARFID, um, which is uh, we can get into the t- details of that, but it's it's um, characterized by low appetite, lack of interest in eating or eating food, very extreme picky eating, not just the kind of normal childhood pickiness that can happen. Um, and then there's a few others that are, are pretty rare. So, um, but those are the main ones that, that people might encounter. Oh, you touched upon a very interesting topic. So I was wondering, how do you know when disordered eating becomes an eating disorder? Right, that's such an important question, yes. Because disordered eating is certainly very widespread and it's, it's, you know, especially in, among some populations would be difficult to find somebody who didn't have some sort of disordered eating, but whether it rises to an eating disorder is a different question. So each of the eating disorders has their own, certainly their own kind of threshold criteria that you look at to see if somebody meets these diagnostic criteria for how much weight they've lost or how many times they're binging and purging, that sort of thing. But I think a better rule of thumb just in general is if it is interrupting or limiting somebody's ability to go to school, to work, to function in their everyday lives, it's starting to change their socialization patterns. They're avoiding going to a party because there's going to be food there or they don't want to go out to dinner with their friends or um they're having trouble concentrating at school or, you know, things like that. When it's starting to get to the point where it's interfering with your everyday functioning, that is the sign that it's really time to take a, a, a good look at what's going on and consider that maybe it's risen to that level. Uh, yeah. So that makes it much clearer. So now and then if you miss your lunch, for example, it might not be eating disorder, but if you keep missing it over time and it starts to really get in way of your daily activities, that might be something. I would add to that. Yes. And I would add to that. There's an affective component of it. So, you know, if you miss lunch one day or you're, you're busy and, you, you know, whatever happens, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily indicate an eating disorder. But if it's to the point where there where it feels like there's fear associated with something with either eating or not eating or there's anxiety that gets attached to either eating or not eating in a way that like is driving whatever you do next, that that's a key component as well. And with regards to demographics, so most of us probably think of eating disorders affecting younger women mostly, but is this universally true? Absolutely not. No, we certainly have that perception, right? That it's it's mm. white, predominantly wealthier young women um, who develop eating disorders. And that's our historical understanding, but that is not true. And there's a lot of data out now that demonstrates that that is not true. And I can say from my own, in addition to all the research statistics that are out there, my own experience working at the clinic where I worked, um, we certainly had teenage girls in there, um, but we had women as old as 70 and everybody in between. And this, they predominantly treated women. So we didn't see a lot of men in that particular clinic, but that's another feature that, you know, more and more men are being, you know, we're recognizing this among men in ways that it was not recognized before. 
And so that stereotype that we have of who's vulnerable to an eating disorder is, is incorrect. So you brought up the current cultural aspect of uh, how we understand eating disorders. So how does culture play in? Well, it plays in in a number of ways, you know, and there are debates about this, of course, in, in the scientific literature. Um, my view is the, that the main way that culture plays into this is it provides a a language through which people are expressing their distress. So as I said before, in the West, we have this association of, say, anorexia with a concern about thinness and thin body type, because that's the language that we have for expressing a number of issues about, you know, struggle or adversity or moral accomplishment, those kind of discipline, those things that we value culturally. We express those through this language of thinness. But we see other places that eating disorders are not necessarily associated with a drive for thinness. That may be the result. That may be part of the outcome if somebody is dealing with anorexia. But that might not be the motivator for them. It may be something more about modesty or it may be something more about morality that's not expressed through that language of thinness. So the way that culture operates is it provides, you know, certainly produces conditions that make an eating disorder perhaps more likely to occur, but it also provides the language through which those that distress is expressed. I'm really glad that you point out that uh, the end result of being thin, this uh, sort of caricature that we have in our eyes, in our heads, uh, it's not always true. So what other motivators can there be? maybe not motivators, but uh, sort of guiding uh, principles, for example, coping with stress? Um, could there be apart from uh, just the striving for thinness? Absolutely, yes. So a lot of what we see um, is a, a high degree of shame that can be derived from any number of sources that people might, you know, have in their life experiences. So shame is a key component that it can be coupled with ways of coping with stress. You know, I think a very common denominator, regardless of kind of what language of thinness or not language of thinness is being used, is that eating disorders are very um, useful in a sense, or effective, I should say, to a point, strategies of managing emotion and sensation in the body. So if you think about it, you know, what, what we're eating or not eating, we all know this affects our moods and it affects how our body feels. And so for somebody who's really struggling with anxiety or depression or some other very stressful situation or emotionally overwhelming or physiologically, you know, hyper, um, kind of hypersensitized situation, then engaging in certain kinds of food behaviors can make that feel more controllable or make it feel less overwhelming. So this is something that we see a lot is that a common denom denominator and that, that we see is people who are feeling really like things are dysregulated and either emotionally or physiologically or both. And that the way that they're managing their food behaviors is helping them feel a little bit more consistent in the beginning. Now, ultimately, an eating disorder will take things beyond that and will dysregulate people even more. So it becomes this kind of cyclical problem because then as they get more dysregulated, they think, oh, I just need to do more of this behavior and I'll feel, I'll feel better again. It worked for me before. 
I'll just do more of it. It'll work for me now. And it just becomes this cycle that is, is difficult to help people get out of. This is really interesting, sort of really getting to the foundation of what eating disorders are and what kind of purpose, if you can put it, it serves. So right in the beginning, it does have specific uh, specific purpose, doesn't it? But then afterwards, it might get beyond what it was initially supposed to do. Exactly. That's exactly right. And would this also include uh, people with some sen- sensitivity abnormalities, perhaps, or not abnormalities, but differences, something like alexithymia, for example, where you cannot really understand the feeling within your own body? Can this also uh, feed into developing uh, perhaps eating disorder? Well, they certainly seem to be associated. It's a little bit hard to know kind of correlation causation direction, but um, but yes, we see alexithymia is very is correlated a lot with eating disorders. So again, it's hard to know what came first. Um, We also see, interestingly, that you brought up sensitivity issues, that there is a high correlation between uh, eating disorders, specifically anorexia and autism. So either people themselves who have autistic traits or a close family member who have been diagnosed with autism. So there's, there's, there's research that's kind of looking at that intersection, which I think is really interesting if you think about some of the heightened sensitivity issues that can go along with autism and how especially children with diagnosed with autism often have utilized food and in some unusual ways as well. So I think there's a really important and interesting link there that, that bears more research. Oh, yes, for sure. This is such an inter- interesting uh, field. And do you think that uh, even clinicians have to have a bit more understanding of different varieties or flavors of eating disorders that can be um, kind of rise due to different reasons? Yes. Now, I will say the clinicians that I've worked with were very sophisticated clinicians and they, they understood a lot of this. Um, and we're very aware they were, that's a part of the puzzle, right? Is the clinicians being aware the bigger piece that I encountered and that kind of emerged through my research for famished is, is that the clinicians are not working in their own, you know, according to their own, um, preferences all the time, or most of the time they're within a whole healthcare system that has its own interests and its own, uh, parameters for, for health and illness. And that, that, kind of impedes a lot of what the clinicians do when they, even when they have a more sophisticated or more nuanced understanding of what's going on, they're often kind of have their hands tied a little bit by the larger healthcare system. So perhaps uh, one of the questions that uh, people are suffering with um, eating disorders or their families have is how did it start? What made this disorder occur? So can you maybe talk a little bit on the early childhood experiences that can be related to developing or not developing uh, eating disorders later in life? Sure. So, you know, it is, these are very complex conditions. And so there's, there's not like a set of um, specific things that we can say, oh, if somebody has these four or five things, they're going to definitely get an eating disorder or not have an eating disorder. But what I can say is that the kinds of things that tend to contribute to an eating disorder that we see if they kind of high proportion among people with eating disorders are certainly there seems to be a tie with trauma, whether that's um, it could be the loss of a, of a loved one. It could be abuse of some sort. It could be uh, 
car accident, it could be medical trauma, you know, it could be a range of things. Um, and if we think about eating disorders as a strategy that people develop in order to try to regulate emotion and sensation, that makes a lot of sense, right? How that could be correlated with somebody who's experienced, you know, a trauma in their life. And it doesn't have to be a specific event kind of trauma. We also see a lot of kind of um, relational trauma, which for those of you who are not um, maybe as versed in that, is kind of the, the, the sorts of experiences of disconnection and um, alienation that people can feel within their own families or within their own communities that raises to a level of being really profoundly destabilizing for someone. So I would say certainly, you know, either an actual event trauma or relational trauma um, and being in a, in a context, whether it's within the family or certainly the broader culture that persuades people to evaluate themselves by external measures. So for example, it could be, um, and this is not true of everyone, right? So these are just some things that seem to be correlated, but just because you ha might have this feature doesn't mean that you're going to have an eating disorder. But you know, people, we, we know that people who develop eating disorders tend to be very um, academically driven for the most part, right? And they tend to be very high achievers. And so the pursuit of that kind of external um, recognition of worth is common. That, that gets taken up in the process of the eating disorders. Well, I know I'm not, not saying this very, very succinctly. Um, so I would say, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, Galena. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I, I, really, I really understand what you are trying to say. And uh, to be honest, I think many people can actually find uh, hear themselves in what in what you're saying. OK, I mean, we have this very strong uh, ethos in our society that we need these external markers to tell us that we're good enough, that we're okay, that we've made it, that we're worthy, that can be grades, it could be salary, it can be, you know, any number of things, it could be possessions, like we have all these external markers that we look to, to prove to ourselves and other people that we are, we are worthy of being taken seriously. And so that plays into the eating disorder situation, it gets taken up into the language of thinness and weight, and certain, you know, at least in the West, and so that becomes kind of the central, the central uh, set of markers that people then rely on for those things. Yes, for sure. And some of it can even be a, a sort of subconscious. Sometimes we don't even realize oh, yes. we're doing this. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's reinforced, of course, by, by everything that we have in our society and our culture and the media and all that kind of stuff. So I don't think that eating disorders are created by the media. But I do think the media uh, embodies and articulates this cultural ethos that we have about external validation. And sometimes that presents itself. And, you know, if you look this way, if you wear this thing, if you eat this food or, or don't eat this food, then, you know, that's part of the whole same story. So before we go to uh, discussing uh, the ways to tackle these uh, disorders. Can we speak a little bit about how you get diagnosed with such, or when you realize where you need to, to seek help? Yes, yes. So this is a, this is a, a challenging issue. 
because at least in the United States, our primary care physicians, the people who are usually the first line that people see when they go to the doctor um, or our OBGYNs for women or, you know, those, you know, kind of first people that you might go see don't receive training or very much at all in how to recognize an eating disorder and how to diagnose it. Usually it's somebody who has additional specialized training. Um, Even in psychiatry, there's not always an awareness of how to appropriately diagnose, recognize and diagnose an eating disorder. So, um, but if one goes to the doctor and, you know, they, a doctor may ask questions certainly about eating history, weight history, what's going on. And we'll try to evaluate the degree to which the behaviors that somebody is, is talking about is interfering with their everyday life. But again, we have these checklists from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, that kind of gives us the thresholds for diagnosis. But like I said, a lot of the medical professionals are not really up on that. That's not their their specialty. That's not what they focus on. So unfortunately, a lot of people get missed. And this is especially true given these stereotypes that we have of who's at risk. You know, we have this idea that it's young, white, affluent females who are at risk. And so what happens is that people who don't fit that demographic often are not asked these questions. They're just assumed to not be at risk as much. And so they're not asked. This is especially true of different ethnic groups and different socioeconomic groups. They're, they're just, it's, it's not on the radar for the clinicians a lot of times. So they're not even asked. And when it comes to individuals and their families, what role do they play in recognizing that something might be wrong? Yeah, so it's oftentimes the families who recognize something. And that could be whether somebody's a teenager living at home with their parents or an adult. It could be your roommates. It could be your partner. But it is often somebody else that notices that something's going on. They might notice somebody is um, either skipping meals or not eating very much or that they're, the foods that they are willing to eat, that kind of shrinks, like what they're willing to eat might be, you know, these 10 things and then it's these eight things or you have to watch out, especially with teenagers, if they, you know, want to become vegetarian or vegan, there's plenty of reasons to do that. Absolutely. But it's something to watch out, like to make sure that those choices don't start, keep continue to narrow to the point where there's only a few things that somebody will eat. That would be an indicator that there's a problem or somebody that has um, difficulty with flexibility if there's a change or going out to eat or so it's usually somebody else that notices and i will say the majority of eating disorders you will not notice by somebody's change in weight only with anorexia usually and only at the kind of when it's been going on for quite a while then you'll see that to a noticeable degree so a lot of eating disorders don't you wouldn't know by seeing somebody on the street that they had an eating disorder And so it's important to pay attention to these other things. And the hallmark really is somebody, if you see somebody becoming increasingly rigid about what they will and won't eat or where or when, then that that's a sign that there's, there's some problems going on. And it's uh, especially important now during pandemic, when we were lockdown and would not be seen perhaps by by many of our friends so perhaps we should uh, keep an eye on 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 a close to one even when we meet them for a meal now and then absolutely yes and the pandemic has certainly exacerbated all sorts of mental health conditions including eating disorders mm-hmm. 
All right, so let's speak a little bit about how we approach treating eating disorders. So if we start from the level of individual. Right, so there's a range of there's a range of things, um, and it depends a lot on what somebody's dealing with and how um, significant their their symptoms are and, and how medically urgent, you know, their, their symptoms are. So there's, so it could start from anything from seeing a, a counselor or a therapist outpatient, you know, once a week or, you know, however often is necessary to, to get that additional support. Um, if somebody needs additional, you know, more support, if that's not, not really, um, enough, there are day treatment programs that people can attend where you go a couple hours a day, a couple days a week. Um, again, depending on what somebody needs, there's a lot of flexibility in a lot of these programs, you know, where I worked at the clinic where I was doing my research, some people came, you know, three days a week for a few hours. Other people came five days a week all day. So it just kind of depends on what, what somebody needs. But that what that consists of is the individual therapy, which is critically important with somebody who knows about eating disorders. So individual therapy and, and group therapy, which can also be extremely helpful, um, as well as dietitian support, which is essential, and psychiatric care, um, which is true even if somebody doesn't necessarily want to take medication or is ambivalent about taking medication, having a psychiatrist as part of the team is really important and a medical doctor to make sure that, you know, medically everything is staying okay. So once you get into the day treatment situation, you will, you would have a treatment team. You can certainly have that as an outpatient as well, but it kind of comes usually together. If you go somewhere for day treatment, you should kind of, that should be part of the treatment that's, that you receive. If somebody still is really struggling and needs more more care than, than the day treatment, then there's something called residential care um, where people go and stay for 24 hours. Um, usually that's in not a hospital environment. It's in a residential care environment. So for example, the clinic where I worked, they owned a number of, of residential homes in a neighborhood and that's where people lived. And they were staffed by nurses and therapists and, and you know, dietitians during the, you know, throughout their treatment and they would get programming groups, individual therapy, you know, all the support that they needed in order to really address what was going on. And then if somebody's really medically unstable or acutely in, at risk, then that's the time that you would use an inpatient hospital situation, but usually only until they were uh, able to be medically stabilized. And then you would try to step them down to uh, you know, a lesser uh, level of care. So there's a range of things that can be really tailored to what any particular person needs. And now thinking in terms of a fam uh, family or the significant others who are also affected by eating disorder. So it's not just a, just an illness of one person, isn't it? It's uh, it can affect the whole family. So from their point of view, what kind of uh, sort of experiences you have uh, encountered and what can they do? Yes, it's so important to think about the families because this is a traumatic event for everyone. It's certainly traumatic for the person with an eating disorder. It is a traumatic experience to go through an eating disorder and also for the families and loved ones to, to, to you know, see the person, a person that you love dealing with this sort of situation and it can go on for a very long time. It is traumatic and very difficult and the families really struggle. And, you know, historically in the eating disorder literature, 
um, and I mean back like prior to 1990s, um, families were often blamed for causing the eating disorder and were really alienated from the whole treatment process and kind of seen as the problem. Mm. Um, And there's been increasing uh, awareness that while certainly family dynamics can contribute to an eating disorder, it's much more complex than that. And families are also a key part of the resource um, for helping somebody recover. And they also need their own support because like I said, they're, they're also going through this traumatic situation. Um, So for families, oftentimes there is um, family therapy that goes along with an individual who might be getting treatment for an eating disorder. That's important for lots of reasons. It's important for addressing any family dynamics that are going on that might have contributed to the eating disorder, either arising or sustaining. But an eating disorder is is a it's like the tip of an iceberg, both for the individual, but also for the family system that they're in. It is manifesting a whole, you know, sets of dynamics that are problematic and challenging, not just for that person, but for everybody. And so helping somebody recover from an eating disorder in a family means really helping the entire family look at what's going on and how to um, move things into a, a healthier dynamic for everybody, because it's not just the one person who's who's sick. That's articulating other things that are going on. And that's not to blame the families. It's to say we are all in this together and we all are in this process of recovery and we're all going to be healthier at the end if we can work through it together as opposed to being in a conflictual kind of situation with the person who's sick. So it's really important for families to also get their own support about what it's like to live through this. You know, we have a recognition that, for example, people who are caregivers of somebody with with Alzheimer's, that they are under enormous amounts of stress. And there's a lot of literature out there about that and how important it is that we support them through this process. And I would say it's equally as important with families of somebody with an eating disorder um, that they need help and support. And they are expected to then have this person come back from treatment and know how how to manage it and, you know, they're, they're people dealing with their own traumas as well and struggles as well. And so we need much better infrastructure to help them um, on that front. That's, um, I think, a really important piece. And uh, on the level of professional institutions, so we know that some of uh, um, areas of human activity perhaps are more associated with development of eating disorders. So perhaps beauty industry or, as you already mentioned, um, jobs like academic academic jobs, for example, are the ones that... uh, have a high level of, of perfectionism uh, as being touted as a very good one. So what could institutions do perhaps to prevent, um, if I could say, or support people who might be developing or are going through the uh, these uh, disorders and uh, these experiences? That's such a good question. Um, and it's tough because a lot of our society runs on rewarding perfectionism, right? That we want people to be industrious and we want them to do an excellent job and to like always surpass what's already there, you know? So we're, we're very fueled by this perfectionist ethos. Um, so, and institutions, you know, are embedded in that. So of course that's, that informs a lot of our institutions. So I would say one um, key component is, is some flexibility in accommodating people who might be struggling, whether it's an eating disorder or any other mental health condition. We've got a lot of accommodations in place for people who 
have um, physical disabilities or challenges or, you know, any uh, medical issues going on. We have very fewer, much fewer um, ways of responding to somebody with a mental health issue or even before it gets to that point. Um, the way that we value each other, you know, we're in such a hyper sped up world and a hyper mediated world. And we value each other through the kind of markers that we can see and that we can plot on a, you know, chart or something like that. And I'm talking, you know, just kind of generally, this is how our society orients and, um, institutions, like I said, function within that and, and adopt many of those same strategies. And, I don't think there's anything, unfortunately, that institutions can do to prevent an eating disorder because it's such a complex situation that has to do with a lot of, you know, personal history, family history, you know, friends, colleagues, like all that kind of stuff. But I think an increased attention to the importance of attending to mental health, Mm. whether it's in an academic situation or a corporate situation or a high school or, you know, whatever, we give a lot of lip service to it, but I think we need to build our, our infrastructures in a way that allows for more flexibility to actually address those things as opposed to just saying we care about it, but then having policies in place that make it difficult for people to function. Yeah, for sure. And perhaps uh, also in some areas, normalizing even the body image, isn't it, of, of people? Absolutely. Yes, yes. So what kind of challenges you still see in this field that you would like to address? I think the biggest one, or one of the biggest ones, is there's still so much stigma about these illnesses that stems really from a very long history of how they've been talked about and thought about. And I trace this in Famish, this history from kind of the origins of eating disorders in the old diagnoses of hysteria and how through the century and a half or so since then, it's gone through a lot of changes, right? We don't talk about it in that language anymore, but a lot of the same assumptions kind of have accrued to the way that we think about eating disorders now. And so there's so much stigma about, you know, it's, oh, it's young, rich, white girls who, you know, have too much time on their hands, or they're only concerned about how they look. It's all about vanity and a pursuit of beauty. And, you know, it's trivialized. It's really trivialized, or it's blaming the patient or the person who's suffering for being superficial or, um, you know, caring about those things when there's much bigger problems in the world, right? So we have so much stigma, which impedes people from getting help. It impedes people from wanting to acknowledge that that's what they're dealing with. It impedes clinicians from being able to see beyond that when they're trying to treat somebody or even recognize what might be going on for somebody. So that's the biggest piece. I think we can't make any further steps until we kind of break out of that old perspective of who is the typical eating disorder sufferer. And then beyond that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go on. Uh, uh, I have another question, but uh, we can ask later. Oh, I was just going to say beyond that, I can at least say in the United States that we need a dramatic overhaul of our entire mental health care system, but particularly with regards to eating disorders, that they're very, there are, you know, a couple of places around the country, you know, that are quite 
good as far as what we know how to do now. One of them is the place where I worked that I called Cedar Grove, which is a, is a, a good clinic as far as they go. Um, but again, they're embedded with this, within this larger healthcare system that constrains what they can and cannot do in a way that perpetuates the problem. And so that's a whole other set of issues that would be a, a need to be addressed in order for this to be effectively um, engaged with in, in the United States. And do you think that stigma can also prevent de- the development of new approaches to treatment of uh, these conditions? I absolutely do. Thank you. That's a great question because I think we have so much received wisdom about what is the cause and what is the solution that it becomes difficult to think outside of that. Um, and not that people aren't sophisticated thinkers, but if you think about the way research works, you know, we we read, you know, we you know, and read all the stuff. And we try to think about what is our next contribution going to be, but it has to, it builds on what came before. That's just how knowledge works, right? We build on what we know. Um, and so it makes it difficult to radically rethink things. It's not impossible. And some people are doing it, but it is, it makes it challenging. And so um, I think we have to be willing to really work to dismantle some of those old ideas in order to free up our thinking about what's causing this to happen and how we can best treat them. All right, so let's zoom out and think of uh, the bigger picture now. So in which way our understanding and thinking about the eating disorders is being shaped by political, economic, or even social forces of the day? Right. So in the United States, we have a healthcare system that is governed by managed care which is um, a situation where you buy into an insurance plan as part, usually as part of your employment. There are public plans that are administered by the government, um, but most people are getting their insurance through their employer. Their employer is choosing the health insurance company. You don't have a whole lot of choice. You can maybe choose if you want like the super gold plated plan or like the bronze plan or something like that, but you don't have a whole lot of choice about what's covered. And the insurance companies are in the United States are for-profit enterprises. So their their goal is to make money, like any for-profit business. That's what they're doing. And and they their their avenue for doing that happens to be healthcare, but they're there to make money. And so it behooves them from that perspective to take in as much money from premiums as they can and pay out as little money in services as they can, right? So this is their, where they're coming from. And so what that means in practice is that there's this very kind of contentious situation between a patient, the clinician, and the insurance company to try to get treatment. And the insurance companies have very strict um, and very res- constrictive um, guidelines about when they will and will not pay for care. So it's this situation where oftentimes it's a clinician who sees a patient, the patient needs X, Y, or Z treatment, and then the clinician has to make the case to the insurance company about why this patient needs this kind of treatment. Well, the insurance company, you know, the people who make those decisions with the insurance company don't tend to have medical degrees. Some of them do higher up. If you can, you can appeal sometimes to somebody who does, but oftentimes they don't. They're just, they're looking at their checklist and they're saying, well, I'm sorry, this is what my 
company says we can cover and what we can't cover. So the situation becomes this very um, tug of war sort of thing between a person who needs care, an insurance company who's reluctant to give care, and then a clinician who is trying to broker that whole situation to help the patient get better. So that's kind of the broader context within which all of this is happening in the United States. And you add to that all the stigma and the misperceptions and all of that about eating disorders and what causes them and who's at fault for them. And you start to get a sense of why it's so difficult to get quality care in the United States for these conditions. And what would be the implications of improving these um, uh, these issues, perhaps structural issues that people have uh, in getting uh, a care, a proper care, or um, even even diagnosis of uh, these disorders? Right. Well, I will say so. There's two pieces. So generally, what happens, I'll say, is that you know an insurance company might give somebody, let's say, ten days or two weeks of approval for that much care, which is you know barely getting started. Um, the end result is that people are often discharged long before they're ready to go. They're still really struggling and they relapse. And then insurance companies may say, well, treatment was not effective. So we're not going to pay for any more treatment and blame the patient for that. And that's the end of the story. What I have seen is in cases where somebody, let's say, happens to have the financial resources to not go through insurance and can actually like follow the treatment recommendations of the clinicians the outcomes are so much better. That's unfortunately such a small, small fraction of people can do that, but the outcomes are so much better. They're not constantly under this threat of losing insurance benefits or having to constantly justify to some case manager who may or may not know anything about eating disorders, why you need more time, right? Or having treatment yanked, right? When you're at your most vulnerable. So That leads me to think that if we had a system that did not do that and that actually afforded people the full range of care that they need, um, that eating disorders would be have a much better chance of being resolvable early on, which reduces cost in the long run if you want to go that route, but certainly reduces suffering for the person and for the families. So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Famished, surprised you the most? Oh, goodness. What surprised me the most? Honestly, two things. So one thing, I'll start with the less sunny one. And the one first thing that surprised me the most is how screwed up our system is. Like, I, I knew that um, being an American, I knew that it was a screwed up system, but working in it for as long as I did and from the perspective I did to really see the fundamental double binds that are embedded in the system, especially for people with eating disorders, um, surprised me the extent to which that was the case. The other thing that surprised me was the dedication of the people who work in this field, the clinicians, and they are stressed out and it's very difficult work. And um, not everybody goes into this. In fact, a lot of clinicians avoid working with this population because it's historically, you know, it's difficult and it's got all these multiple dimensions to them that other, other conditions might not have with the medical piece and all of that. Um, but the dedication Um, of these clinicians and they're human. And so they don't always do the perfect thing, you know, or sometimes they make mistakes or they're constrained by the situation that they're in or whatever the case may be. They're not, they're not infallible, but they are 
deeply dedicated um, and genuinely care about trying to help people the best they possibly can. And that was that was really an inspiring part of what I saw. And I will say, in addition to that, the 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 clients who are in the process of treatment, we have this perception that people with eating disorders don't want to get better. There, that's a common you know thing. They're resistant to treatment. They don't want to get better. That's not what I saw. Um, yes, people can push back against treatment because they're terrified and they don't know what else to do, or they're not sure how to do things differently, but, and they might be afraid to kind of let go of some of those behaviors that they have found to be helpful in the past. Like, oh my gosh, I'm suffering now. If I let go of these, what's going to happen to me? It's going to get even worse. So getting people through that part can be challenging, but people don't want to live like that. People do not want to live with an eating disorder. It's miserable. And so the, the patients or the clients who were there, um, I was inspired by them as well, even though they were so, you know, the point I was seeing them in a clinical setting, you know, very much struggling, but, but their resilience and their drive to find a way out was um, also incredibly inspiring to me. Oh, yeah, for sure. And also thinking about doctors, many people may have misconception that doctors just don't care, but they do care, don't they? They really care Absolutely. about their patients. Yes, they care about their patients very much. And again, human, fallible, don't always do everything perfectly, <laughs> but they really, they really do. They wouldn't keep getting up every day and going and doing this hard work. They could go do something else, but they do this because they genuinely care. And as we try and raise more awareness of these issues in the general population, are there any good sort of pop media creations that are movie series or films that depict eating disorders accurately and perhaps can be really helpful with educating our society? Yes. So there's many. Um, I will tell you two of my favorites are the ones that I, I find the most resonant with my own personal experience and also what I've seen as a researcher. So one is a book by a woman named Maria Hornbacher called Wasted. Um, it's a difficult read. She gives a lot of detail. Um, people should be aware of that. Like if somebody's actively struggling, struggling with an eating disorder or kind of in the process of recovery to be mindful of that before you dive into it. Um, but I think in my experience, it gives a, a really um, on-spot kind of account of what it's like um, to deal with it. Um, and she doesn't sugarcoat anything, you know, and she's very honest about her own experience and her, her treatment. Um, another film, a film that I, I find moving and, and really reflective of what I've seen is the film Thin by Lauren Greenberg. And... Um, it's a difficult film to watch. It's controversial. People have different opinions about it. But what that does is looking, it's at a treatment center and it's really looking at following a number of clients as they kind of go through this treatment process. And I think it does a great job of depicting not only the struggles of what an eating disorder, you know, can be, but also what happens in an institution and what kind of constraints are placed on the clinicians and kind of how that becomes this, this mess um, and help people try to navigate that and find a way forward. So those would be two that I would recommend. Excellent. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? 
Yes, I will first say I want to correct what I said. It's not Lauren Greenberg. It's Lauren Greenfield. I appreciate. I apologize for that. I want to make sure I get her name correct because she did a really fantastic job. Um, so I had going forward. Well, um, I was. I have a couple things on on my plate, and everything's a little bit on the launching pad right now because of COVID. Um, I have been very actively involved in some work on um, mental health and academia. Um, which is a huge issue, both at the undergrad and graduate level and among faculty. Um, you know, an enormous amount of our population are in these contexts and, and um, in these very high pressure situations. And, and mental health is something that has really been neglected in that domain. So I'm doing some work related to that. Um, I also have um, some initial steps toward a project that's looking at food insecurity and eating disorders. So again, trying to get at some of that you know, busting that myth about who is susceptible to an eating disorder and saying, you know, looking at other conditions that can be um, conducive to or lend themselves to disordered eating and how that might present itself in other populations that we're not used to looking at um, in that way. So food insecurity is a huge issue in the United States. We're a very wealthy country. We have a lot of people who live with food insecurity and, um, there have been some initial studies that suggest that there is a high degree of disordered eating and perhaps eating disorders among that population for reasons that we might, you know, speculate about, but we need to go and do some, some actual ethnographic research and, and find out what's, you know, what's going on from their perspective. And then a third project that I'm actually quite excited about that's on a very different note in some ways, in some ways not, um, is an ethnographic project about the rise of polyamory in the United States and ethical non-monogamy. And what I'm interested in there is how, as with my work on eating disorders, how people are navigating intimacy with other people and how our human connections um, are so central to our well-being, and that there are multiple ways that people can explore that and find fulfillment in it or not. And polyamory, non-monogamy has been increasing in the United States to the point where it's, it's really become quite, um, quite normalized. And a lot of, I'm sure in Europe, this is probably old news, but in the United States, it's a newer kind of thing. And so there's questions about why is this happening now? What are people, why are people gravitating toward it? But I'm really interested in kind of the, the intimacy piece and how people reconfigure their experiences of intimacy as they become involved in in these kinds of relationships and what they what they that does for them um, and for the people around them. Oh, that sounds super interesting. We're looking forward to reading your research. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Yes, well, my uh, a website I would direct folks to is www.rebeccalester, all one word, dot com. And that has information about all my research and information about the book as well, and also information about my clinical practice. So it's all kind of there on that one site. Um, the book is available wherever you can, wherever you get books. Um, and I also am on Twitter at uh, my handles at psychanthro, P-S-Y-C-H-A-N-T-H-R-O. Um, and so you can find me there as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this illuminating discussion. Thank you so much for having me in and having this conversation today.